Hi, this is Robert Furrow, and welcome to TruthQuest Podcast. This is our Q&A, where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what the Bible says so we can know what to believe. Rather than approaching the Bible to try to back up what we already believe, the confirmation bias, we approach the Bible to find out what it says and then correct what we believe to follow what the Scripture says. It's a sure way to be biblical and to follow the things that the Bible says. And uh, there's an awful lot of sure There are certain things that we can't know for sure, but there's an awful lot of surety in us going to the scriptures to find out what they say. Our first question today comes from one that was asked a while back about whether or not God hates people. We know that the Bible tells us that God is love. That's John 4. Uh, 1 John 4, 8, God is love. And we know that in John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So God is love. In 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, we get the definition of what love is. And God is love. Love suffers long. God suffers long and is kind. It does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Love is not puffed up. Love does not behave rudely. Love does not seek its own. It's even amazing that God desires to bless us, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. So there under love, it doesn't rejoice in iniquity. Now, Psalms 11.5 says, The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who God who loves violence, his soul hates. So he hates the ones who love violence. Psalms 5.5 tells us also that God hates those who do iniquity. Now, uh, understanding that, Hosea 9.15 says, All their wickedness in Gilgal, for there I hated them because of the evil of their deeds. I will drive them from my house. I will love them no more, and their princes are rebellious. Now, I want to pull this up for you here. Let me see if I can do that. Let me get rid of that. Let me pull this up for you in um, Hosea because I want you to see this, that God didn't hate them originally, but God began to hate them. So this is Hosea 9, 15. Let me put that up on the screen for you here. It says, All their wickedness is in Gilgal, for there I hated them because of their evil deeds. So he hated them in Gilgal. Before that, he didn't hate them. But their evil deeds in Gilgal, he hated them. I will drive them from my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebellious. And he goes on to talk a little bit more about it. So understanding that God is love, that God does love, but God hates those who love violence and and and, and hates individuals who do these things doesn't mean he doesn't still love us and want us to come to him. In the same way that I may say of one of my children, I hate who they become. I'm not saying I necessarily hate them, but I hate who they become because of the things that they're doing. Now, Romans 9, 10 through 13 has a statement that some have looked at and believe that it says that God chooses to love some and hate others. Uh, This is an interesting passage of scripture, but it's not saying what some people try to say that it's saying, and you see that as you take a look at it. This is Romans 9. Let me get there. Romans 9, uh, um, 10 through 13, 10 through 13. And you, you may know this passage well. 
Romans 9. Let me get to 10. I'll put it up on the screen for you. It says, and not only this, Rebecca also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac. For the children not being born, not having done good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. So God chose beforehand that the older was going to serve the younger, that Esau was going to serve Jacob. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now, it looks when you read that, like God is just saying, I chose before time that I was going to hate Esau and love Jacob. But here he's not talking about individuals, where it says the older shall serve the younger as it is written. That's actually in the book of, let's see, that's actually in the book of Malachi. And I want to go there and show you this passage, because then it begins to help us really get an understanding of what God's saying here. So in Malachi 1, 2 and, uh, through 4, he says this, I have loved you, says the Lord, yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord, and Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated, and laid waste to his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness, even though Edom has said, we have been impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I may build, they may build, but I will throw it down. Notice now he's talking about a group of people, the Edomites. Jacob, he has loved the chosen people to bring the promise of Messiah in, but Esau he had hated because they had become wicked. God, through his foreknowledge, knew what Esau was going to do, and he chose Jacob, the older, to serve the younger, but he chose that his that, that Esau, because he know, knew who the Edomites would become, that he would end up hating them. Now, it's also important for us to remember that God desires men to repent, desires people to get saved. Ezekiel 18.32 says, For I have no pleasure in the death of the one who dies, says the Lord. Therefore, turn and live. So even when we have done wickedness, are chosen to love violence, God wants us to turn and live. 1 Timothy 2.4 says, God desires all to be saved and all to come to the knowledge of the truth. One of the best examples for us of this is the Apostle Paul who began to hate people in the church, even cast lots for them to die. But God loved Paul, even though he had done violence and hated him in the violence that he was doing, God wanted him to repent. So anyone who was on the side that would, would fulfill Psalms 11, uh, 5, right? Uh, that, that uh, let's see, Psalms 11, 5, the Lord uh, tests his righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. If they turn from the violence, then God will indeed love them and his love will be upon them. But he hates the, those horrible things that people are doing to one another and ends up hating um, that individual. All right, so good to see you guys. Uh, good to have you here. Uh, this is our Q&A. Uh, when, and our desire is to take a look at questions through the lens of Scripture. If you have a question, then write the word question down and then rewrite it. Make sure that it makes sense and then go ahead and submit it um, so that we can look at it and understand it completely. All right. So we have a question from Psych Man. Uh, looks like you're in Aruba. All right. Good. Uh, I hope you're having a blast there. Um, if Christianity is a relationship, not a religion, how would you establish scripturally that 
the actual interactive relationship with the Almighty is required of salvation. All right, if I understand exactly what you're saying, Psych Man, it's biblically, how would we talk about a relationship? That a relationship is inquired with the Almighty is required. And there's several places that we could go to talk about this. Remember, Jesus said, not anyone, everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter into the kingdom of heaven, for I will say, away from me, for I never knew you. So that's a relationship. He didn't know them, and because of that, he sent them away. I want to show you John 17, as Jesus is praying his prayer here. This is the real Lord's prayer. He's uh, praying it before he's crucified, and he's interacting with the Father, and here he says, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come to glorify your son, that your son may be glorified in you and has given him authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So it's in knowing the only true God and the son whom he sent. It's not that we are not religious because we do rituals and we believe in him, but it's that salvation comes by knowing him and having a relationship with him. All right. And so um, I, I think this is a really important part of Christianity because I could just get into doing works. I could say, okay, I'm going to do what God wants me to do. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to, whatever he says to do, I'm going to do it. But if you're going to do everything it says to do, then you have to do the two greatest commandments, which I know you know, psych man. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. These are relationships. To love God is a relationship. To love people is a relationship. So let me cover this one more time. If Christianity is a relationship and not a religion, how would you establish spiritually that an actual interaction relationship with the Almighty is required of salvation. So yeah, I think I, I went ahead and answered that question, uh, that we do have to know Him, that it's, it's in the knowing God that we have salvation, and that's why we have to get our sin out of the way. Jesus went to the cross, took our place on the cross, the substitutionary work of Christ, so that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, which is what, what uh, Peter said in his sermon in Acts chapter 2, if anyone calls on the name of the Lord, they will be saved. All right, so we have a question from Jari. Jari, good to see you. Go ahead and get you back over here. Uh, and Jari says, let me go ahead and get your question back up here, Jari. Jari says, what does Revelation 9-1 mean is the allegorical or literal bottomless pit? What is the angel called a star? Thanks. All right, let's go to Revelation 9, and let's take a look at this. We're not that far away from studying this section, by the way, Jari. Um, so, these are, these are the trumpet judgments. And in, in Revelation 8, you had the four trumpet judgments where there was judgment upon the earth. It was on the, on the earth. Earth dwellers are judged by God judging the earth. And we know in Revelation 21 that the new heaven and the new earth are going to pass away. I mean, the, the, the heaven and earth are going to pass away. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem that comes down. So let me go ahead and show you this passage, what it says here, and we'll ask those questions. All right, Jari? So then the fifth angel sounded. This is the trumpet judgments. 
and I saw a star falling from heaven to the earth. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit, and he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Then out of the pit, out of the smoke, locusts came up on the earth, and to them was given power as that the scorpions of the earth have power. They were commanded not to harm the grass or the earth or the green things of the trees, but only those men, go ahead and get this out of here right now, only those men who have not the seal of God on their forehead. That, that's the 144,000. And they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. Their torment was like the torment of scorpion when it strikes a man. In those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die and death will flee from them. And then it gives us the shape of the locusts. Uh, so let's go back to your question now and see if where, where the allegory would come in. What does Revelation 1-9 mean? Is that allegorical or literal bottomless pit? I, I think it's a, a literal bottomless pit. Um, and I understand what you're saying. It, does that mean it, it, doesn't, it doesn't have any bottom to it? If it's a pit and it goes down into the middle of the earth, some have talked about the, the core of the earth and that there could be someone who could be falling forever because it would be a circular thing in the middle of the earth. Now, is that what they're talking about? I don't know. Uh, when I when I look at these things, I think God is able to take something and to do supernatural things with it. So God could take a pit and God could make a pit bottomless. So is that God doing something supernatural or is it an, um, an allegory for the bottomless pit? And I don't know, Jari. Um, and then it says, and you got really tiny with your question, and why is the angel called a star? So, um, there are places in the Bible where stars are mentioned, and I don't know, um, and the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star falling from heaven to the earth. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit. Uh, and so, um, why it refers to him as a star? I, I need to do some research on that. Other places where star is used to talk about angels. I know there's a passage in Job which says that when the foundations of the world were laid, all the stars uh, sang together and the sons of God shouted for joy. So there you have the stars as separate than the sons of God. And we've come to know the sons of God as being angels and so the stars that are there. So I will be looking at this passage, uh, Lord willing, next Wednesday night, Jari, and we will take a little bit closer look at why star is mentioned there. All right, so I have another question from Jari, which is a follow-up from last week. Jari says, follow-up from last week, what about um, conferences? Should they be free as the gospel and charging um, money for a conference same as when Jesus turned over the money changers? So we were asked. Um, so we were asked about last week about bookstores. Jesus went into the temple. The money changers, those who sold doves, those with the the livestock, flipped over the tables, drove them out. Said, "You shall not make my father's house a place of merchandise." So. Is it okay for us then to sell, have, a, have a coffee shop where we sell coffee? Is it okay for us, as he's asking here, to have a conference where you charge for a conference? Or for, what was the other one here? Um, 
all right, yeah, conferences shouldn't be free, the gospel charging for money. So let's just think about a conference. So we put on a conference every year, Jari. So our conference is the Calvary Chapel Southwest Pastors, Bibles, and Leaders Conference. Uh, people come from all across the United States to go to our conference. We get over a thousand people that show up to this conference. This year, it's on apologetics. It's the beginning of March, so it's just a couple of weeks away. Very excited about it. We have Frank Turek, Greg Kokel, um, and we're going to talk about how to defend our faith. This is not like the gospel. These are our Christians who want to learn more from people who can really minister to them. And so you invite someone like Frank Turek and you pay him for coming and speaking. I don't know whether he would come for free or not. He might, but you pay him for coming and speaking. You pay Greg Kokel for coming and speaking. You provide certain things for the people at the conference when they sign up and go to the conference. And so you charge whatever it is, 60, 70, $80 for a three-day conference, and all of that goes to the expense of bringing a conference to them. I don't think that this is merchandising the house of God. Now, if you're, pay if you're charging $400 per person for a conference, and the conference is costing you $30 per person, there might be a problem with that. But when we're talking about putting on something like a conference, there's not a problem with that. There's not a problem having a bookstore that gives resources to the people in the church. It, it would be if they were charging excessive rates for them, if they had to do it, like, like the money changers. The, children, the, the, the Jewish people had to pay their taxes in temple shekels. So they had to bring the Roman money and exchange it for temple shekels, but they were charging them exorbitant rates. So now if you went to go give your tithe to the temple, which you had to do under the law, and then you went and they charged you seven or 8%, now you're giving 17% to God, but they're getting seven or 8% of it. And now when you're giving what's supposed to be out of joy, now you're upset about it. Same thing is true with the doves that they sold or the, the pre-approved animals that they had approved. They were taking advantage of people's sincere desire to worship. That's what's wrong. When a church tries to make money on people's sincere desire to worship, you have to do this and you have to pay me in order to do that. Church services along these lines are are. Are, are free, right? You come and you sit down and you learn and you grow. And then you decide if you want to give to God for that work, if you want to invest in the kingdom of God for what that work is. So yeah, there's all kinds of things that churches can do as a ministry to the body that those who want to pay whatever it is can pay and it's okay. All right. So thank you, Jari. I appreciate that, that question, that follow-up. Um, we have another follow-up question from Kimberly. Kimberly, good to see you. Kimberly says, follow up, Christians often say God love is unconditional. To me, it seems his love does have conditions and I can't find his love is conditional, uh, is unconditional anywhere in scripture thoughts. Yeah, so um, people often say God's love is unconditional. Uh, God's yeah, um, again, it's a bit complicated, kind of like we talked about in the beginning of this Q&A, where you have God is love and that God so loves the world that he gave his only begotten son. Anyone who calls on him can be saved. So that's unconditional. 
anyone who calls on him. The condition is that you've got to call on him, but it's anyone who calls on him can be saved. So the gospel goes out to any who call on the name of the Lord can be saved. So there's a way in which it's unconditional. He's not saying only those who are Jews or only those who do these certain things, but anyone who calls on the name of the Lord. The condition is calling on the name of the Lord. So is God's love unconditional if the condition is coming to Christ, is calling on the name of the Lord, is receiving him. I don't know if you could say then that God's love is completely unconditional. I understand what someone would mean, that God is not looking down at a certain group of people. God doesn't have partiality. That's a better way to say that, that it goes out to anyone. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever would call upon him would be saved. The condition you have to call upon him. So technically, it's not unconditional, but he doesn't have partiality. And anyone who calls on him could be saved. Anyone. They just have to be an anyone, and they can be saved. So it says to me, it seems like there are conditions. I think this is what you're talking about. So yeah, that's my thought. My thought is, yeah, there are conditions to salvation. I have to call on his name. I have to receive him. I have to believe right? I have, to, I have to be born again. I have to have my sins forgiven. All of those are conditions, but they're not conditional only for some people. Therefore, they're for everyone. And I hope that that is helpful, Kimberly. All right. Uh, so, let's see. What else we have? If you're um, here with us for the very first time, really glad to have you here. If you have a question, you can write the word question out and then write out your question, reread it, make sure that it makes sense, and um, we will get to them as they come in. Uh, so, uh, again, good to see you guys, uh, all of you who are joining us. We have a question from Stephen and Katie. Stephen and Katie say, question, my wife and I have moved away from Tucson to a small town in Iowa. I was born in a small town in Iowa. Um, which is of the traditional, which of the traditional churches would you recommend we go to? There are no Calvary churches here. Um, be interested, Stephen, in what small town you're in in Iowa. I was born in Clinton, Iowa which is right by the Mississippi River, and the big industry there was Clinton Foods out of Clinton, Iowa, which my dad worked for, all right? Um, so, which of the traditional churches? So, if you've got traditional churches that are there in the town, you've got Catholic churches, you've got Lutheran churches, um, you've got some Orthodox churches, you've got Methodist churches. I know there are Methodist and Lutheran churches there because I was baptized in a Methodist church as a baby in a small town in Iowa. I know there's Lutheran churches there because my mom was Lutheran and my dad was Methodist. And then we were brought up Methodist. And um, out of all of those, oh man, so much has taken place, Stephen and Katie, since there's, there's it, it all depends on the particular church. So, you could end up in a Lutheran church where they teach that you have to be Lutheran to really be saved. And they be, and they become liberal. Or you could, could go to a Lutheran church that is more conservative. And I'm not talking politically now. I'm talking liberal towards the things of God. They don't believe the Bible. They don't trust in the Word of God. Um, the same thing with a Methodist church. They vary from church to church. Um, and the same thing with the Catholic church. Look at what 
the the pope is pushing forward now very a very liberal agenda again liberal theologically to receiving things theologically i don't know if there's any shortcuts i tell you what i would do first of all is i would look for a calvary you say there's no calvary there so then i would look for a non-denominational church and then i would attend it and i would look at their statement of faith and I would try to really find what's there. I would try to find a group of real, genuine believers that meets. Um, maybe there is some kind of a, maybe a crisis pregnancy center that's there, which you can go get involved in, which is going to have real Christians that are really helping people out. Maybe there's some kind of, of, of people that are helping the poor, and you could go and be involved there and get to know real Christians. So the real question is, is in that town, where do genuine Christians go to church? So that's gonna be your goal to find them. And I'm sorry, Stephen and Katie, that I don't have any more help for you as far as the traditional churches. I just can't speak to them because I don't know what town it is. I don't know what churches are there. And I don't know if the churches are of a certain denomination, which way they lean. The only way to find out is to go and to see what you think about those. Hopefully, there is some non-denominational churches uh, that you can attend there, and that will help you. So, thank you very much for your question. May the Lord give you wisdom. May you find a place there in that small town in Iowa uh, where the Lord will open up the door for you to really be able to grow and learn in all that God has for you. All right? So thank you very much. Uh, I appreciate that. And hopefully um, that will be helpful for you. All right. We have a follow-up from Kimberly. Kimberly says, uh, follow-up from last week. Why is the church in, in such controversy over the Asbury event? People are actually arguing over it. Yeah, so we did talk a little bit last week about the Asbury revival. And I can tell you that anytime something starts to happen in one place, there is going to be jealousy. There's going to be attacks that are going to take place. People are going to come against it. Uh, if this Asbury revival is from God, then it will prevail through all of the attacks that are being made on it. If it's not from God, then it'll die out. If it's from men, if men are trying to make it happen, then it will end up dying out. I'm hoping that this is a work of God. You also realize that God often does a work and then the enemy tries to attach himself to it to really cause certain things to happen. And then individuals involved in the revival are also attacked. When, look, individuals could even be used by God and still have huge problems. Right now, there's a movie out called The Jesus Revolution that's about the the revival that took place in Calvary Chapel, my pastor at Calvary Chapel, in the late 60s and the early 70s, and Lonnie Frisbee. Lonnie was powerful, used by God, like a Samson figure in certain ways. But Lonnie also had difficulties and struggles, and people attacked the work because of what was going on in Lonnie Frisbee's life. Even though Lonnie was only involved in that revival for about a year and a half, he was involved in it, used in a very powerful way, and so then people began to attack it. So if you wanna dig deep enough, you're always gonna be able to find something to be able to attack, and, and I think that that's what's going on in Asbury. Now, the truth is, I don't know if what's going on in Asbury is from God or not. I hope it is, 
but time will tell. And being patient and waiting and seeing if it spreads, seeing, I love the fact that they haven't been letting people be platformed there. That's really important. That leaders have gone there, no doubt wanting to be platformed to some degree, but they didn't let that happen. And that's really good. They kept it student led. I know they've restricted some of the services now, and I don't know what that means. Does that mean things, certain things are changing or not? Um, but yeah, I mean, throw anything out there, Kimberly, and there are gonna be people who are critical, right? And I, and I think that is important for us. I think that's important for us to understand that those kind of things are going to happen and are gonna take place. That people are gonna be critical, even if it's an, a genuine act of God, there will always be people who stand against it. So I think that's why that's happening. Now, are some of these things legitimate? I don't know. And, and I've heard a few things brought up that I just I just don't know. There's no way unless you dive in. And I'm, I'm in the let's step back and see phase because God can even do things um, in an amazing, uh, in an amazing way. So, so, um, uh, yeah, Keith, uh, let's see. So he's talking, he's talking about being born in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Yep. Um, and I was born in Clinton, Iowa. Keith, um, I remember when you were born, huh? How about that? Um, of course you knew that. All right. But good to have you here, Keith, uh, moderating as always. I appreciate that. Uh, we appreciate it. And so, uh, let's see what other questions do we have? Yeah, if you're visiting here for the very first time, really glad to have you here. If you have a question, then you can write the word question down and then write it out and reread it a couple times, make sure it makes sense. Be sure to add any references that we can go to to help with clarity uh, and to look at the questions that you have. So fact check these hands has a question. Uh, fact check uh, says, can you explain 1 Corinthians 11.30 or do you have an example, personal or scriptural, people getting sick and dying from this. So, yeah, so uh, Corinthians, the Church of Corinth. Um, I've said before that the Church of Corinth was like a dumpster fire. It was a mess, and there were all kinds of problems. It's interesting, I'm talking about tongues tonight. The teaching tonight is on tongues out of Acts chapter 2, where they spoke in tongues. And you go to Corinthians 14, 13, 12, 13, and 14, to look at what the Bible has to say about tongues because they were being massively misused in the, the church at Corinth. It's interesting, you don't see tongues addressed in any meaningful way in, in, in the letters to the Ephesians, the Colossians, um, the, uh, the Galatians, Romans, Hebrews, but to this church, because they had things so out of control, they're addressed on so many different things. And then people have taken Paul's addressing of people misusing things and made that a desire to put a platform out to, to, um, to push tongues to the forefront, when I think that the gift of tongues still around is around today, but I don't think it's supposed to be in the forefront, or, nor was it ever supposed to be in the forefront. And we'll be talking about that tonight. But here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, let's talk about what's happening. Um, let's see, verse 30. Um, yep. All right, so let's talk about what's happening here. Fact check these hands, all right? Uh, so here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul is giving the Corinthians what he has received from the Lord as far as communion. And he goes over the basics of communion. 
but he also talks about them drinking and eating in an unworthy manner. Uh, and let me see if I can get there. Um, well, let's just let's just take a look at this. Yeah, let's pull it up on the screen. Let's take a look at this. So here we have Paul talking about the Lord's Supper. So Paul says, I receive from the Lord that which I also deliver to you, that Jesus on the same night that he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat this as my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you do this in remembrance of me. So far, it's all the same. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. So as often as you do this, we're proclaiming his death. He died on the cross for our sins. He shed his blood for our sins, and we proclaim his death until he comes. All Christians are going to partake in communion until Jesus returns. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup in an unworthy manner. So this is very, very important because we're remembering the death of our Lord. We'll be guilty of the blood and body of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat the bread and drink the cup. So he now says, examine yourself, that you don't eat in an unworthy manner, and examine and eat it. In other words, examine and repent, make things right, and then go ahead and eat of it. For he who eats and drinks the cup in an unworthy manner drinks judgment to himself. So that's scary, right? So when I take communion, I want to examine myself. I want to make sure that I'm right with God, honestly right with God, not a pretend right with God and then I take communion. It says, for this reason, many are weak and sick among you and many sleep. So there were those who were sick because they weren't taking communion in a worthy manner and many had even fallen asleep, which means they died. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned by the world. Therefore, brethren, when you come together, to eat, wait for one another. Now, it was different in their day. They had a meal for their day where we have communion services, where we pass communion out, but they had a meal in their day. And he says, if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. They were getting there early and eating all the food, lest you might come together in judgment. And the rest um, I will set in order when I come. Others were, were going and drinking the, the wine and getting drunk. Imagine you're going to take communion, you eat all the food and eat and drink all of the wine so people don't have what they need to be able to take communion and some of them are sick and die uh, because of that. All right, so that's what's happening there. So let's go ahead and look at your question here. Fact check these hands. Can you explain 1 Corinthians 11.30, which I just did, and do you have any examples, personal or scriptural, of people getting sick and dying from doing this? And I do not. Um... I want to be very careful how I judge people. And when someone gets sick or dies, I just leave it in God's hands. Uh, could God be judging someone when they get sick? M maybe. And that's why when you get sick, you examine your life and you see if there's anything that needs to be taken care of. But maybe they just got sick and they're not being judged. And so there's no way for me to know if someone got sick and is judged because of that, because they got sick. There, there's just no way for me to, to know that. So I don't, I don't do that, and I don't know of any examples of that. But I do know this is a warning that I give regularly to examine yourself, make sure things are right. This relationship with God is a serious issue. It's not a game, and a lot of times we act as if it's a game instead of being serious with God and living for Him um, with everything that we have. 
All right, so thank you, fact check these hands. If I didn't answer that completely, um, then you can go ahead and ask a follow-up like Jari is here. Jari says, follow-up, Kenneth Copeland is, is from man and his church hasn't died out. A small church in Texas has died out. Why? Thanks. So I'm not sure where that's a follow-up to, Jari. Um, hey, look, just because someone is teaching a false gospel, I mean, he's tickling people's ears. No wonder things grow. I mean, you're telling people they're going to be rich. You give them to me, you're going to be rich. And people want to hear that. And so they give more to them and it grows. Another small church in Texas dies out. And who knows why that's happening? Only God and the Holy Spirit knows why those things are happening. Maybe that church needed to die out. Maybe it was time for it to die. Maybe it's an attack of the enemy that was able to take out that church. Those are just things that we don't know. Don't We don't know completely. All right? So, um, but why does God allow these false teachers to prosper? Because God allows a lot of false teachings to go forward. And we're told not that, that the church is going to heap up with themselves, teachers will tickle their ears, but we're told to not be deceived. So we have the encouragement to not be deceived. All right. So we have a question from Justin True. Justin True, good to see you as always. Um, why did Jesus have to come to the tribe of Judah? Not from Joshua, who was the favorite, or Levi, since he is the high priest. All right. Um, so there is no tribe of Joshua, right? Justin True. Uh, Joshua was the predecessor of Moses. The tribes are the sons of Jacob. And Joseph has two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, which become two of the tribes that are mentioned there. And then the tribe of Dan is eventually left off of most lists because of the things that Dan gets involved in, I believe, in the end of the book of Judges. But let's just go back to your question. Why did Jesus come from the tribe of Judah? If I were going to choose, I wouldn't choose Judah. Why? Because Judah does some horrible things. Judah sleeps with a, his, his daughter-in-law that he thinks is a prostitute. She gets pregnant and demands payment. And it's just this, this ugly thing that happens in the book of Genesis. It's one of my, the worst chapters to teach through. Why would God choose Judah, who would do such a thing, to be the one the Messiah would come through? Well, why would God have Ruth the Moabitess in his lineage? Why would God have Rahab the prostitute in his lineage? Why, why, why have these people in there? And if I were going to choose, I probably would have chosen Joseph. The, 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 the 11th son, Benjamin would be the, the last one, because he was from Rachel, who Jacob loved, and because God used Joseph in a powerful way, and Joseph had a great deal of faith, that's who I would have chosen. But God doesn't do things the way we do them. God chooses and does things the way he does them. And it reveals to us that we don't have to have perfection in our past to be used by God. That we can make things right, even right now, with him. Even if, as a Christian, you've been messing up in your Christian walk and you decide, you know what? I'm going to get things right with God. I'm going to start living for him and stop living for myself and begin doing the things that God's called me to do. And God will work in your life right now. Now, you talk about Levi, the high priest, um, Justin True. Let's just talk about Levi for a moment. Uh, Simeon 
and Levi had a sister and her name was Dinah. And Dinah was raped by Shechem, the prince of the city of Shechem. And Abraham made a deal with Shechem for his daughter. Excuse me, Jacob made a deal with Shechem for his daughter. And Simeon and Levi were extremely angry at what had happened. Like their dad didn't take care of it when she had been taken advantage sexually. So they made a covenant in order for you to take our sister and for you to marry our women and for us to take your women, then you guys are going to have to be circumcised. So they got circumcised. And then on the third day of the circumcision, when the pain was the worst, Levi and Simeon attacked the city. And because of that, they were, they destroyed the city. And Jacob was appalled at their wickedness and their evil. So the whole story is an ugly story from the rape of Dinah all the way to the killing of the men of the city, most of whom had nothing to do with, with Dinah being raped and with this unjust thing that had gone on. So it was said in, let me see if I can find this. I'll tell you about it while I'm looking for it. But it was said in Genesis as he is, as um, Jacob is blessing his sons. Let me see if I can find this here. Um, let me see if I can find the blessing of, let's see, Joseph um, restores his brothers, the death of Joseph. Uh, so it's one chapter before that. Let me go back to one chapter. Jacob's last words to his sons. So let me see if I can highlight. All right, here we go. So let me just bring this up on the screen here and we'll get to Simeon and Levi pretty quickly, okay? So it says, and to Jacob, and Jacob called his sons together that I may tell them what shall befall you in the last days. Gather together here, sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my right, my might, and the beginning of my strength, the excellent dignity and the excellence of power. Unstable as water, you shall not excel, because you went up to your father's bed then to defile it. And so Reuben slept with one of one of the one of the concubines and it may have been Leah I can't maybe Leah's his mom I can't remember all the details but he went up to his father's bed he defiled it he went up to my couch and so Reuben is not going to excel because of his failures then Simeon and Levi our brothers instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place let not my soul enter their council. Let not my honor unite to their assembly. For in their anger, they slew a man. And in their self-will, they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, and then he goes on to talk to Judah. And Judah, um, who your brothers shall praise, uh, your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. The children shall be before you. Judah is a lion's whelp from the prey of my son. You have gone up the bow, um, the bow's down. He lies down as a lion and as a lion, he shall rise up. The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the lawgiver between his feet until Shiloh comes and to him shall be the um, obedience of the people. So we can see there that Judah is the one that's chosen and it talks about Shiloh, which is the the promised one to come. But he said he's going to scatter Levi and Judah. So your question, let me get back here. Your question, uh, Justin True, was since Levi was a priest. So God said he was going to scatter them. Now, how did that happen? 
Simeon ended up being assimilated by Judah. Judah was the largest of the tribes and Simeon ended up being assimilated in them. So they literally didn't have their own territory. And Levi became God's priests to care for spiritual things. So God carried out the curse of Jacob by bringing Levi closer to him and using him as Levite cities as a place of refuge and that Levites would be scattered throughout all of Israel. And again, it's a sign of how God can take something, even difficulty, a problem, and he can turn that into something that is a blessing. That Levi got to be the ones that would go close to him. Levi would be the ones who would take care of the tabernacle, but they would not get their own land so that Jacob's word would become true, but God would lift them up despite of the curse that had been laid upon them. It's very interesting. So I would choose Joseph, but God doesn't do things that way. God decided to choose uh, Judah. And that tells us that anyone who makes things right between ourselves and God can have a fresh start. No matter what you might've done or gone through, even as a Christian, you can get a fresh start today by living for him and saying, I wanna do what's right for you. And God was able to bless even someone like Judah who had done some things that, like I said, I, I don't know that I would chose them, but God does things his way and praise God that he does do that. All right. So, um, yeah, Jari's asking still more about Kenneth Copeland. Look, he's a false, he's a false teacher. He's teaching false doctrine and people are, it tickles their ears and they want to hear it. So that's why he's, I, I think that's why he prospers, why he makes money. Um, look, God allows false teachers to rise up because we are supposed to have enough um, desire for righteousness and, and for what's truth is that we don't allow ourselves to be deceived. All right. So um, Rod asked the question, what about 1 Corinthians 13, 8? Tongues will cease. So I am teaching on this tonight, Rod, and we are going to cover whether or not cessationism is true, which cessation comes from the word cease, that they believe that, that the gifts have ceased, or whether or not continuationism is true, that the gifts of the Spirit continued. So let's just take a look at 1 Corinthians 13, 8, and we'll, we'll look at whether or not it says that tongues are going to cease. And there's no doubt that tongues are going to cease. It says they're going to cease. But when will they cease? Okay? So, Rod, let's just take a look at this. I'm going to bring it up on the screen for you. It says, uh, love never fails. So, it's gone through the whole love chapter, but now it's, it's talking about the gifts of the Spirit. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will fail. Where there are tongues, they will cease. Where there is knowledge, it will vanish away. So, those are gifts, okay? Prophecies, the gift of knowledge, and the gift of tongues. And these are all going to vanish away. They will cease. Um, uh, whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. So there will be a time when it's done. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, that which is in part will be done away with. So the question is, what is perfect? Some people say, well, the word of God is perfect. And certainly God has given us the word which is perfect for everything that we need. 
But the passage goes on because not only is the word of God perfect, Jesus is perfect. And when Jesus returns, he is perfect. Is that when things are done away with? Or was it when the canon was completed, which would have been the first century? That the foundation had gifts and supernatural things, but once the scriptures were completed, they no longer needed it. Now, the Bible never says anything like that, but what is it going to say? When I was a child, I spoke as a child, understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. So he's saying that these things, tongues and knowledge and prophecy, are all for when we are children and we have special needs. But when we grow up, become mature, we put away childish things. We could say that the word of God makes us mature. However, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. So when the perfect has come, we're going to see face to face. Now in part, but then shall know just as I am known. So I'm going to know just as I'm known. So even though I have the word of God today, I'm going to say that I'm still not seeing him face to face or that I'm known as he is known. That's still in the future for us. That is still at a time in the future when we will be incorruptible bodies, right? Immortal bodies, and we will be in his presence, and then we will know as we are known. Now, there is in Acts chapter 2 a statement that helps us understand how long this gift of the Holy Spirit was to be given. And I got this up for you. So, Peter at the end of this sermon says, repent, and let everyone be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So this is to that generation. Repent, and you're going to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. They had been given it. Now they're going to give it to people who repent um, and are baptized and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord God will call. So the promise is to as many as the Lord will call, as far off. So this promise of the giving of the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is what was spoken of with, with um, in Joel, prophecy and vision and these supernatural gifts are going to continue on. Also, it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, don't forbid the speaking in tongues. And, hey, there, and, there, and there's nothing that would change that. I believe that the gift of tongues are for today. I believe you can have the gift of tongues. I believe that they have been pushed too far out. They've been platformed. They've been, been put as the thing that's just like Corinth did, and it's a mistake. But God has given it to us for our own personal edification. And we'll be talking about these things tonight. What is the gift of tongues? How should it be that we pursue it? Um, I don't think that a cessationist, someone who believes that the gift ceases, doesn't believe in miracles. I've heard that before. They don't, they don't believe in the, 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 the gift of tongues. They don't believe in, in uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, so they don't believe in miracles. Whoever said that? What they don't believe in is, what they believe is that the supernatural sign gifts have ceased, but they still believe that God heals and touches. They would just put it in a different category. It's not gifts. It's God working in the miraculous. So to say that someone who doesn't believe in the gift of the Holy Spirit today doesn't believe in the miraculous is not right. Also, to go on the other side, 
and to say that someone who is speaking in tongues is always right in what they're doing is wrong as well. Because again, they put personal revelation. Oftentimes, those who believe in the gift of the Holy Spirit put personal revelation as high as scripture. And so, they end up teaching all kinds of things that are wrong about tongues. And so, the truth is in the middle as often is needed. The truth of this is in the middle. So, yes, Rod, there will come a day when tongues will cease, uh, when we are perfect and that which is perfect has come, okay? So, thank you for bringing that up. I do appreciate that. We have a question from Alex. Alex says, question, so doesn't the Bible say somewhere that God loved us when we were still sinners? Yep. How does that fit into he hates those who do iniquity. I hate all the doers of iniquity. I think it's Psalms 5.5. 5. Um, yeah, for, God's, um, for God demonstrated his love for us that yet while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And um, I think that's right after in, in Corinthians, right after it says that he became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God for God so loved the world. Uh, I mean, excuse me, um, for... Uh, God loved us while we were still sinners. Demonstrate his love for us while we were still sinners. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, if someone is separated from God until the very end, they are now going to be judged by God. And, and, the, and the window for salvation has closed. Then God will hate those individuals and his wrath will be upon them. Doesn't mean he's not going to be heartbroken over them. Like I said, if one of my children go and begin to do something that is horrible, I would say, I hate who they become. God hates who they become, but they're still his children. And I think that's why this is a complicated situation. And I think that's why, you know, we have trouble really trying to grasp this and understand it. But the Bible, I mean, clearly, like I said with Paul, Paul was one who had iniquity and hate, but he turned to God and he lived. If you don't turn to God, then you're under the judgment of God and you're going to find yourself judged. And why we are still sinners, God does love us. And so, yeah, how do you, how do you reconcile those two? Um, I, I don't know, Alex, how you reconcile God hates all who are evildoers and that why we're still sinners, he demonstrated his love for us. I guess it doesn't mean that why we're yet sinners, that we weren't under his wrath, but it does mean that he still loved us. And um, maybe there's a way in which he does love us and a way in which he does hate those who do violence and those who do iniquity. So yeah, it's a, it's a complicated topic, uh, which is why we get those kind of questions. All right, so thank you. All right, so um, we have another question from Kimberly. Just a few minutes left here. Guys, uh, been a good Q&A as always, good questions. Um, Keith said, I could, it's narcissism, just a new uh, uh, physiological uh, uh, word for sin nature. So um, question, I'm not sure what the context of that is, Kimberly. All right, so maybe you could clarify that. Um, let's see. Let's see if we've got anything else or if we're done today. I'll just kind of go ahead and down here and take a look. I'm not sure, Kimberly, what that question was, if you had one that was clearer, but good to see the interaction, good to see um, the community that is is continuing to be built here and all that God's doing, all right? 
Um, we have a question, well, not a question, 2 Kings 18 saying, for, for the sake of David, Lord not willing to destroy Judah for David's sake. Yeah, um, I don't know if that goes all the way back to why God chose Judah, Rapture Watch, but I think it certainly does have something there. Um, let's see here. All right, so we have a question from Dry for the future. So I'm just going to make it to the end of the, the reel here. Follow-up from Kimberly. Um, yeah, let's bring that in. Kimberly says, um, where does it say the window for salvation closes at death? I know it does, but I can't place it. I think it's the passage that says, it's appointed once for man to die and then comes judgment. So that, you know, you live your life here and you're judged for what you do here. So it's appointed once for man to die and then comes judgment. And there may be some other passages um, once you would begin to search for it to find out what those other passages would be, but that's what they are. All right, so that brings us, that brings us to the end of our Q&A for today. Uh, I hope you guys stay close to Christ. We have a service in about an hour. We're gonna be talking about tongues. We're gonna be trying to give a balanced view of what tongues is all about um, and talk about the extremes on both sides. And we want to find out, again, what the Word of God says and how we are supposed to live. So it's good to see you, good to have you here. May the Lord bless you and keep you, make His face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May you find yourself walking close to Jesus and even be like Judah, who even though he was doing things that were wrong, God blessed him, but that we would say, I'm going to do what's right now. When we say, Lord, even though there's been wrong in my life, I'm going to do what's right. May God stir you up to live righteously and wholeheartedly for him. All right, so God bless you guys. Uh, we will see you later on. I am out.